Uh, God, you are good. Uh, you are good to us. And we come here this morning with uh, burdens and troubles and difficulties in our lives. Uh, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can say it is well. Uh, we can sing that song and mean those words uh, because whatever our circumstances are and whatever burdens we're carrying, um, you're with us and we've been set free from sin and death and brought into life because of Jesus and we look forward to the day when he returns and makes things right again. Uh, God, as we open your word together this morning, would you be here among us? Uh, Spirit, would you open our hearts and our minds to the truth in your word? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we live in a culture that's saturated with this idea of you do you and I'll do me and everything will be just fine, right? I can live how I want and you can live how you want and there's no real need to draw any lines about what's permissible or what's beneficial or have those conversations, right? It doesn't matter. Our culture screams that self-expression is the highest priority and anything that would inhibit or restrict me expressing myself to the fullest degree is oppressive and it's an attack on who I am as a person. Well, living in a culture like that can weigh on you, right? And those ideas can start to creep in. After all, what difference does it make if someone lives and expresses themselves a little bit different? What difference does it make if people who sit in the chairs with me affirm things that, you know, I, I can't get behind, but they, they can believe things that I don't, right? And like, and who are you to tell me how I can live or what I can do? And especially in light of all we've been learning about forgiveness, what difference does it make how I live or what I do because Jesus is going to keep on forgiving me anyway? Right, this idea comes out in phrases like this. I know that, you know, maybe the Bible talks about this and maybe I shouldn't do it, but, but God is a God of love, right? And he would want me to be happy. And, and I know that I know in my heart of hearts that he'd actually be fine with me doing this because he really wants me to live my best life right now. Well, that kind of thought isn't new and uh, it doesn't catch the scriptures off guard. In fact, it's been around at least since Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome in the middle of the first century, some 2,000 years ago. You may remember uh, the last couple of chapters leading up to this. We've been talking a lot about the idea of how Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, right? By the grace of God, it's been given to us and that we can't do anything to earn our salvation, not only that, uh, but we talked about how when we were in Adam, we saw this last week, in Adam we were in sin, but now once we repent and believe, we're counted in Christ and his obedience is credited to us and we're saved by his grace. And we, we see that the law is a gift, right, that shines its light on sin and shows us where sin is so that we can repent of that. And, and Christ's grace just extends and extends and extends and covers us and covers our sin. And so, in light of those realities about what the grace of God does for sin, Paul preemptively addresses a question. Should I keep on sinning so that grace can increase? Should I keep on sinning so that grace can increase? In other words, I, I was having a conversation with Pastor Ryan this week, and, and he said, you know, I think the question that is really being asked here is one that we all ask, right? Just how much sin can I get away with anyway? right? Since, since God's going to forgive me, just how much sin can I have in my life and he'll be okay with it? We're all enticed by that question from time to time. 
right? We, we start an activity or whatever where our conscience weighs on us a little bit and we think, uh, maybe I shouldn't do this, maybe I shouldn't go there, maybe I shouldn't watch this or read this or do that, but then we think, well, I'm not really sure and, and God's going to forgive me anyway, and so we just plow right ahead. Well, Paul outlines three reasons and then gives an exhortation uh, in the first part of chapter 6 that Tasia read for us. Uh, and as we go through, we're going to see that if we take this brazen approach to sin, um, it should be a major red flag to us if it's happening on a regular basis. It's a major red flag because at its best, it's a, a foolish misunderstanding of the work of Jesus. But at, it, at its worst, it's a defiant slap in his face. So, as we work through, would you open up uh, to Romans chapter 6? We'll be in verses 1 to 14 this morning. It's on page 914 in the Worship Center Bible. I really encourage you, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, grab one of those, open it up. You can make sure that what I'm saying up here is actually found in there. If you have your own Bible, open up to Romans. Um, otherwise, if you have a phone with you, uh, the YouVersion Bible app is great. There's an opportunity to take notes in there um, if you're into that kind of thing. So, open up, please, to Romans chapter 6. The question for us this morning, as we work through then, is this. Why shouldn't I keep sinning so that God's grace can increase? Why shouldn't I keep sinning so that God's grace may increase? Well, reason number one that Paul gives for us is found in verse two. You have died to sin. Read verses one and two with me again. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? By no means, Paul says. No way. Absolutely not. If I was somehow unclear up to this point and you thought that you could take advantage of God's grace and keep on sinning, don't. That's not what I'm saying. Do not go on sinning that grace may increase, Paul says. Why? Because you have died to sin. Do you know what doesn't go around participating in sinful activities? Dead things, right? Dead things. And against the backdrop of everything we've learned about the gospel and justification that's brought by the blood of Christ, dead means dead here, right? We're pulled up out of death and into life, and we're, we're dead to sin. If we're to understand our position correctly, we need to first understand that as it relates to sin, we are fully dead. Commentator Michael Bird um, speaks of this idea of being dead to sin like this. He talks about no longer living in sin land. He says, for believers, sin is no longer their status, their state, or their master. You cannot live in sin land when the government posts your obituary in its local newspaper. Why would you want to remain there anyway when you recently received a letter notifying you that you had just inherited grace land? Imagine you're living in a tiny little apartment in a building that's not well maintained and it's kind of dumpy right and there's asbestos and there's lead paint and and there's black mold in the ceilings and you're feeling that in your lungs and you're starting to develop that cough and and it's slowly killing you but you've been just gifted a house not any house but a mansion and it's on some land and it's on some water and so every morning you can wake up and you can see the sunrise and it's beautiful and you've got all this room to roam if that happened, why in the world would you stay in the dumpy apartment? You wouldn't, right? You wouldn't stay there. Well, Paul says we have died to sin. 
And we should not be a people who have like faked their death, right? We're not trying to evade taxes or something and live under this pseudonym. We're in Christ. We have really died to sin and we've been moved into a new home. One where Jesus is our master and grace is the norm. So what does it mean to have died to sin? Well, first, some things that it doesn't mean. I think these are some common misconceptions about what we think it means to die to sin. But uh, what, what does it not mean? It does not mean that we no longer want to sin or that we're no longer tempted to sin. Of course we are. Right? Jesus, though he lived his whole life without sin, was himself tempted to sin. Paul writes in Romans chapter 7 in uh, just a little bit, he talks about doing the things that he hates doing. I don't want to do this thing. I hate doing it, but I do it anyway because of the sin that's in my life. We will be tempted to sin. Right? The world is not yet as it one day will be. Jesus has not returned and restored all things. And until he does, sin exists and we will be enticed by it. So it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't sin, right? It doesn't merely mean that we shouldn't sin. That, that doesn't take what Paul says here far enough, right? If it just means we shouldn't sin, that's, that's not far enough because he says that we're dead to sin, right? We're dead. Not we should die or we will die to sin. We are dead now when we've turned to him to sin. So it goes much further than what we should or should not do. Third, it does not mean that we are slowly doing better as it relates to sin, right? Paul used that term dead. We have died to sin. Death is abrupt and full and in many cases final, right? Well, instead, the moment we become Christians, we are no longer under the ruling power of sin. We're no longer under its ruling power. Remember, we've moved from the land of sin into the land of grace, right? We're no longer living in sin. It's no longer our master. It's no longer the ruler of our domain. Pastor and author Tim Keller says it like this. He says, so having died to sin does not mean that sin is no longer within you or that it has no more power and influence within you. It does. But sin no longer can dictate to you. Though you may obey it, and though the Bible predicts you will obey it, the fact remains that you no longer have to obey it. You have died to it. It can be dead to you. If you have turned to Christ, you have died to sin. Therefore, do not continue in it. Reason number two, we should not go on sinning that grace may increase. We were baptized into the death of Christ. Let's look at verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, Paul says? Not only have you died to sin, Romans argues, but you've been baptized with Jesus, the perfect one, into his death. Baptism is a practice that we love here at Crossview, right? If you've been around for any length of time, you've hopefully seen, uh, taken in, participated in one of the baptism services that we've had where we put the baptismal right down there and people come and confess that they're following after Jesus and it's an amazing time of celebration every time, right? Well, when people are baptized in water, at least in part what they're doing is declaring that their identity is no longer in Adam. They no longer identify as in sin, but their allegiance is now in Christ. Their identity has shifted from Adam to Jesus, Becoming a Christian is not about taking your life's pie chart and adding a little slice of Jesus in there. You know, you, you do some Jesus things once in a while. It's about totally changing the flavor of the pie, 
right? The whole thing, every aspect of your life is no longer lived in sin, but is now lived in Christ. The beautiful thing about this, being baptized into Jesus, is that it's not just one-sided. We're not the only ones uh, that, that do something here, right? We declare our allegiance, and we strive to now live our life to God. And, and it's also true that when you're baptized into Christ, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're filled with the power of Christ, and you're filled with the love of God, and he will walk with you through your struggle with sin. You're not alone in it. Being united to Christ and he works within you. We'll talk more about that in just a little bit. So why shouldn't you keep on sinning? Well, because your identity has shifted. You've been baptized into the death of Christ. You're no longer in sin, but now in Jesus. The third and final reason that Paul outlines here as to why we shouldn't keep sinning, that grace may increase, is that we have been resurrected with Christ and have new life in him. Look with me at verses 4 through 10. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. The death that we were baptized into, Paul says, was for a purpose. What purpose? That we would be raised just as Christ was raised in order to live a new life in and with him. If we've been crucified with Christ and if his death has some impact on our lives, and it does, so then his resurrection has an impact on our lives. We are not merely dead to sin. Becoming a Christian does not simply mean that our old sinful ways have stopped. We now have new life in Christ and are united with him in a resurrection like his. And we move from simply not sinning into looking for what's next and how we can serve the Lord. When Christ died and he was raised to life, he stepped into new life. And so, when we die to sin and are resurrected with him, we too have stepped into new life. And, and the new life doesn't look like the old one. Right? Our union with Christ must lead to new life. If it doesn't, if it doesn't lead to new life, then we need to be wary of claiming that we've been united to him. We need to carefully examine our lives and see if there's evidence of this new and resurrected life. New life necessarily comes with changes. It's not like the old life. When you're resurrected, you're made new. I think a common problem in understanding what Paul is getting after here is the way that we think about resurrection. We often equate resurrection to resuscitation, right? And that falls woefully short. Jesus was not merely resuscitated as though he was on his way to death, right? And then he was shocked back to life and into the same life that he had. Jesus was fully dead. Right? He was wrapped and he was embalmed and he was entombed for three days, 
he was fully dead. And then he was raised up. He was resurrected from the dead, not woken up, not stirred from a deep sleep. He was brought back out of death and into, notice the end of verse 4, a new life. So it is with us, Paul says. If we've been united with him in a death like his, then we are also united with him in a resurrection like his. It's a resurrection to new life. One where we have died and we're brought into something new. Not resuscitated, not stirred awake, resurrected to new life. Paul uses some pretty clear and strong language language as he tells us this too. He writes in verse 5 that if we are united in his death, right, then we will be united in his resurrection. Well, that word united is the same one that's used in Matthew 19 to talk of a husband and wife coming together and the two have now become one and there's something new, right? There's an ontological change that happens. These things that used to be different, right? There, there were two and now they come together as one and, and they're, they're now different, right? They're no longer what, what they were, but now they're different and, and we've been melded into Christ, This illustration uh, falls short, but maybe it's helpful anyway. It's sort of like when you make metal alloys, right? I'm not a metals guy, so some of you know a lot more about this than I do. But bronze, for example, doesn't exist on its own. You have to melt together copper and tin and some other ingredients. And then at the end, you don't have copper and tin anymore, right? You don't look at a bronze pipe and see, like, copper and tin swirled through. That's not how it works. It it becomes this new thing, something totally new that's bronze. And so it is here. When we're justified by faith, we're united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, we become something new. We become made for a new purpose and we're no longer slaves to sin like we were, but we're now free from that sin and we're called for obedience to Christ. And in that new life, we live differently. Right? We're specifically, we're called to live like Christ who died to sin and, and who, verse 10 says, he lived his life to God or for the glory of God or in view of God's mercy. And surely Christ lived his whole life, right, in view of who God is and for his glory. He lived that out perfectly. But Paul is telling us that we are to live these new and resurrected lives like Christ lived. Our lives are to be lived to God, in view of his glory, for his purposes. If we were merely resuscitated, then nothing has changed, right? We're the same. We're just awake again, doing the same old things. But if we're resurrected, right, if we really died to sin and who we were, then the only way that we can be brought back to life is by God breathing new life into us, right? You remember in Genesis 1 when he breathed life into that dirt? God had that pile of dirt and he breathed into it and new life was in it and it became Adam. That's, that's what he's doing when he makes us new. We're dead. We become a pile of dirt and he breathes new life into us and we have new life. And that new life is not like the old one. We have a changed status, right? We were in Adam, in sin, apart from God. But this new life is marked by something different. It's marked by the obedience of Christ being credited to us. It's a life that's died to sin, that's been baptized into Jesus and now walks in his resurrection power. God has brought us out of darkness and into marvelous light. Colossians chapter 3 talks about this like this. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You have been raised with Christ, and you have new life in him. Of course you should not go on sinning so that his grace can increase. Well, in light of those realities, right, that we've died to sin, that we've been baptized into the death of Jesus, and that we've been raised with him to new life, Paul comes to the main exhortation of this section. He says in verses 11 to 14, do not let sin reign. Do not let sin reign. Read these verses with me. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace." In light of the realities of who we now are, no longer in the land of sin, but now in the land of grace, called out of sin and into relationship with Jesus, Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. This is not going to be a difficult point for us to understand. It's really easy and really clear what Paul is saying in this section. He says, do not let sin reign. Instead, offer every part of yourself as a tool of righteousness for God to use. It's not hard to understand, even if it's hard to practice. Do you know how to replace a bad habit in your life? Psychologists uh, talk about a few steps. First, you need to identify the bad habit, right? We can't work on it if we don't know what it is. Second, we need to uh, remove the cause of the bad habit. Those make sense, right? But then there's a third step that makes getting rid of a bad habit really effective, and that's replacing the bad habit with a good one. So let's say that your bad habit is snacking on Oreos as you're winding down for the day, right? You turn on the TV or you're reading your book or whatever it is you do to wind down, and you got your, your box of Oreos sitting there, right? You're not really hungry, but you eat it anyway because it's a habit, right? So what do you do? Well, first, you recognize the behavior. You have to see that habit as bad. You have to acknowledge, I shouldn't be eating these Oreos every night, right? Well, then, what can you do about that? Uh, You have to remove the cause of that bad habit. Well, what's the cause? At least in part, it's because you have Oreos in the house. And so now you have to do the unthinkable, and you have to grab those Oreos and put them in the garbage, right? It's It's tough, but that's what we're going to do. We're going to throw the Oreos in the garbage. And the temptation has lessened when we do that because there's not Oreos in the house. But it's still kind of there because we could just, you know, go next door here and pick up some more Oreos and and have them. We might even go on a late night run to get some. But psychologists say what helps even more if we want to replace that bad habit is, is to replace it with a good one. So now, when you're winding down at night and you got your book or TV or whatever, instead of reaching for the Oreos, you're grabbing some carrots or some celery or, or you're getting down on the floor and you're extending your legs and stretching or on the commercials, you're doing some push-ups or whatever, right? You're replacing that bad habit with something that's healthy. And before long, you're no longer eating the Oreos, but now you've established a healthy practice in your life while you're winding down. That makes sense. 
right? We can track with that. Well, so it is with the prescription here for Christians as they follow Jesus. Do not go on sinning, Paul says. Instead, offer every part of yourself as an instrument to righteousness. You have sin in your life, right? You're tempted by it. It pokes you and it prods you and it fights for your attention and your loyalty. Paul says, do something about it. Do something about that sin in your life. You've changed. You're not what you were. You now have the power within you to work on your sin. Let me pause here for a second uh, and revisit an idea that we've talked about in the past. We've talked about the reality that there are really three aspects or sort of phases to our salvation, right? Justification, sanctification, and glorification. As it relates to justification, we've been talking about this one for weeks. We don't really bring anything to the table, right? We're saved totally by the righteousness of Jesus, and God credits that to us, and, and we're justified. And we have salvation totally because of his work. Glorification then points to this future reality where we will be fully saved out of sin and death and will be delivered into God's presence in heaven. And, and we can be sure that God will come through on what he said he'll do uh, as it relates to that. We don't, we don't really do anything there either. God, God brings us there. But then, sandwiched in here is this thing called sanctification, Right? And Paul, in his call to reject sin, is talking about sanctification. And you may remember when Pastor Dan brought up his uh, sheet up here, and he, you know, he did his whole up and down thing with the markers, because the process of sanctification is really a lot like that. We, we are trending upwards as we walk with Jesus, but it's really a lot of up and down and doing really well, and then crashing again. And um, The Bible talks about two realities as it relates to this process, this idea of becoming more Christ-like of being sanctified. On the one hand, we're, we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit works within us and we're transformed by him and we can't really change ourselves, right? He, he, the Spirit, works within us and wills within us to accomplish his purposes in and through our lives. Galatians talks a lot about this, right? We're, we're familiar with the, the famous passage on the fruit of the Spirit or the evidences of the Spirit in our lives, right? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit works to bring those things into our lives, and when we exhibit those, it's evidence that the Spirit is actually working within us. But then the Bible also presents this other reality, like here in Romans 6, where we're commanded things like, do not let sin reign. You do not let sin reign. Instead, offer yourselves as an instrument of righteousness. And it feels like there's a lot of human effort in this transformation, right? It, Paul's telling us to do something. And sometimes that can make us uncomfortable, right? We're like, well, do I do it? Do I have to, or does the Spirit do it? Or is, is the Bible contradicting itself and it's not reliable? Or, or what's going on, right? What, what do I do here? Who's, who's working and, and what happens? Well, the thing is, the Bible's okay with that tension. Um, and you can be too, you can be okay holding up both things. Yes, the Spirit is at work within you. And yes, you're called to do something about your sin. It's like we sang in that song this morning, right? We're fighting a battle that's already been won. God has already won the battle. He's pulled us up out of our sin and he'll deliver us in glorification into heaven with him and we'll exist where there's no sin. And then in the middle, we're fighting this battle alongside him. We are to work on our sin and know that God, through the Spirit, is working on our sin with us. John Piper talks about this idea in his book called Providence. He writes this, 
On the one hand, we are going to find that God commands his people to hold fast, to endure, to fight, to strive, to press on, to not grow weary, to be faithful unto death, and to use every means of grace God provides to endure to the end and be saved. On the other hand, we're going to find that God is not standing aloof from this struggle, watching for its outcome. Rather, he is working in and through the struggle to see to it that we triumph over sin and Satan and that nothing separates us from the love of Christ. God has called you to something really difficult here. He's called you to work on your Christ-likeness by living out your new identity and submitting to Christ as your master, not to sin. So how do you do that? Well, you work really hard at it. You consider the reality here that God is with you, that he's not standing aloof to your struggle, that you've been called out of sin and called into relationship with God and you rest securely in your salvation and the fact that you have the spirit within you. And then you take some really practical steps towards getting rid of sin in your life. You stop and ask yourself the question, do I truly believe that I don't have to sin? Do I believe I don't have to sin? Because you don't have to sin. If you think you do, you're wrong. You don't have to sin. You have the power of the Spirit within you, and he, as he is at work alongside of you, he'll empower you. You don't have to sin. God provides the Spirit to walk with you. So you consider that question, do I really believe I don't have to sin? And then you take practical steps to get sin out of your life. Well, what steps? I don't know. I don't know, because I don't know your sin issues. You have to do the work of examining your life prayerfully and consider what are my areas of sin. And then, with the help of the Spirit and with God who is walking with you and maybe your friends and your family or your church family and some good old-fashioned effort, you start getting rid of those things. You start working on the sin. Of course, it's not going to be easy, right? Satan is competing for your loyalty and your affection, and the powers of hell do not want you to sin less. Of course they don't, but work at it. Sin is no longer your master. You are under grace, and as you work on it, you take the next step, and you begin to offer yourself in service to the Lord, you spend your time not consuming destructive content, but instead consuming God's word. You spend your money not on sinful pleasures of this life, but on being generous to your church and to your family and to your friends and to your community. You spend your thoughts not on sin, but on holiness. You begin your days by praying, Lord, use me how you see fit today. Use me today. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 is a famous passage that many of you will have heard before. If you have, remember it with me. If you haven't, listen up because it's, it's really good. Uh, Moses is talking to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 5 just before this, and he's telling them what they should do uh, in order to enter the promised land. And he's just given them the Ten Commandments, and he's talking to them about walking closely with God. And then we come uh, to chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and Moses says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. 
when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Did you catch all the things in there that the Israelites are supposed to do? Right? First, Moses says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And Jesus says that one is pretty important. Right? And then and he says, these commandments I give you. And they're, they're to be impressed on your hearts. And impress them on your children. And, and talk about this when you're sitting at home and when you're out and about on the road. And when you go to sleep at night and when you wake up. And tie them as symbols on your hands and, and bind them on your foreheads and write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates for people to see when they leave. And it's, it's really easy to kind of gloss over this stuff and say, yeah, he wasn't really serious and this is figurative language and we shouldn't pay attention to that. But, but what if instead we decided to really do what God says here? What if we took these words seriously and we put the truth of God, especially the truth of his word, before us all the time? What if we wrote things down on sticky notes to remind us often of how we're to live? Because you might be like me, and you might get lots of ideas about how you want to change your life and how you want to you know, get rid of some bad habits, and maybe you actually have that bad habit of eating Oreos or whatever in the evenings, and you think, tonight I'm not going to eat the Oreos, and then I'm going to keep doing that tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And so for one night, you, you don't. And then the next night comes and you find yourself and you're, you're chomping down the cookies again. You're like, what in the world? And it's because you forgot, right? It's not that you have bad intentions or it's not that you're, it's, it's, you're busy. We're all busy, right? We have families and we have jobs and we have friends and we have all this stuff going on. And so we forget the things that we're working on, right? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to be cutting down on that. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to be doing this or that. I really want to work on that. Well, what if we wrote a note and stuck it on our mirror, or put it on our phone lock screen or whatever. So we see it in the morning. And, and we see that word of encouragement that says, work hard today and be holy. Or Christ is in me. Or I have been made new. And we let that reminder be with us all day. Or what if we put a note card uh, with a Bible verse written on it in our vehicle, right? And and don't pretend like you don't do this. We come to stop signs or stoplights or whatever, and we're sitting there, and what do we do? We all pull out our phone, and we start scrolling, right? Social media or text messages or whatever notification we have. We all do it. What if instead of doing that, we pulled out the note card, and we used our time wisely for a productive thing that the Spirit can use in our lives to continue to transform us? Or what if we took a few minutes each day to have a purposeful conversation with our kids about this stuff? about sin and forgiveness and the gospel and the grace of God and the importance of the scriptures? What if we were a people who really took seriously the call of Romans for us to live in the land of grace rather than the land of sin? Well, as we conclude, what might that look like? What might it look like for Crossview Church to be a place that's filled with people who live in grace rather than in sin? Right? We've been justified. It's done. And we will be glorified. Right? It will be done. God will deliver us securely. But what about in the meantime? How do we live out our sanctification? Well, it looks like us not just being done with our old sinful ways. Right? But instead, looking ahead to what God has called us to do for him. It looks like repenting often and believing that Jesus' work on the cross was enough for our salvation. So what do we need to do? What do I want you to do? I want you to start 
this week. Just start. Start seriously living in light of your new status in Christ. Do not let sin reign. Flee from it. And instead, offer every part of your life to God as an instrument of righteousness. How you go about that is up to you. I'm not going to follow up with each one of you, and, and, and I can't follow up with each one of you, and, and I can't make you do it, right? But if you want to live in a way that's honoring the Lord with the new life that he's given you, and if you want to be faithfully obedient to God's word, just start. Just start. Flee from sin and live in the grace of God. Let's pray.